Hello, folks. Welcome back again this weekend to Rick Wagner here, getting it right on KGLN and KNZZ. We're all over the place. And uh, let's see, 1192.7, and 101.3. A few other ways to catch us. Uh, you catch us on the Internet. Catch us on the podcast by going on my webpage, which you should, to check up on all the news we have out there. Lots and lots of conservative news and links at uh, the RickWagnerShow.com or Political Viking if you're coming from that side, which is our social media, or they're on Facebook and stuff. So we appreciate your listenership, and however you're contacting us, thanks a lot. Say, what I wanted to talk about this first segment today was something that's been coming up a lot, and that's this sort of idea of conservatism. What, is it, what does it mean? People seem to have different ideas, and it, and it gets really misinterpreted quite a bit uh, when we start discussing what's going on in politics. Now, it's misinterpreted, particularly by the left. Look, the beauty of conservatism is not that it's resistant to change, as critics would like you to believe. No, it's about preserving the best of what we have, the collective wisdom of generations past, the very fundamental and foundational principles that held this whole nation together. And why does it matter? Well, look around. In America today, we live in a world dictated by a frenetic pace for progress. And there's a pervasive argument out there that suggests that anything new is somehow better. But is it really? I mean, let's not confuse change with improvement, right? To conserve doesn't mean to stagnate, but to thoughtfully advance a concept at the heart of conservatism. I mean, that's where conservatism is really valuable. Its ability to provide a stable compass in an ever-changing world. It's about maintaining the essence of America, which is our spirit of liberty, individuality, and, you know, self-determination. In a sense, it's about keeping the American dream alive. A dream that really anybody, you know, rather, no matter what their background or where they come from, which is, of course, part of their background, can make something out of themselves. That government isn't always a solution, but it's often a problem. It's understanding that the freer the market, the freer the people. We stand for small business owner that works 60 hours a week to fulfill his dreams. We stand for individuals uh, right to shape their destiny rather than have some distant bureaucrats do it for them. Conservatism protects your right to work hard, take risks, reap rewards, and yes, occasionally to fail, but hopefully to learn from those failures. You know, at, at the very basic corner of conservatism is the respect for law and order. Our peace and prosperity hinge on that, right? Because if we if we don't enforce the laws, and if the laws aren't fair to everybody and equally applied, then nothing really works. We recognize that supporting these ideas and upholding safety of the individual within our society is what makes communities work. We honor the Constitution and the role of law. I mean, if you don't value the rule of law as embodied in our Constitution, then the whole country doesn't mean anything to you. We also acknowledge that the value of tradition, understanding that our customs and institutions are products of centuries of cultural evolution, right? We've, we've evolved into these things culturally, the things that work, things that have moved us forward, things that harm us generally drop away or cause civilizations to crash. It, it gives us a sense of identity, who we are, belonging, right? That's what this culture is. We can't reject it out of hand. To say it's outdated in some way just because it's not the newest idea that someone came up with that's been untried is just to ignore all the experiences and the, the value that we've 
come out of the past, that we, we know what works and what doesn't. We're perfectly willing to accept the new, but we want to test it. We want to think about it. We want to see how it all works. And that's what conservatism means, preserving what works great through experience and historical knowledge, and then exploring new ideas and incorporating them to move forward in ways that have always worked well in the past. And if you're going to do that, we have to have some kind of fiscal responsibility. I mean, if you if you don't have some financial responsibility, then you can't have a prosperous economy. And without a prosperous economy, you can't have a prosperous people. So where does that leave you? Well, it doesn't mean that you're money-grubbing or penny-pinching. It just means that you understand the value of money and the hard work that goes into creating money and money that's worth something. Not just money that you print, but money that has value because the labor went into creating that value. You know, it's, it's about keeping the government from recklessly spending it. You know, running up a debt on essentially our backs. And having some policies that lead to growth and prosperity. And of course, we want freedom, don't we? Because if we have freedom, all these things are going to be more likely to happen. It's an idea that you're able to speak your mind, to, you know, go to the church that you want to, worship where you want. You know, that's your version of the American dream. This isn't just some kind of abstract idea, by the way. I mean, it's things that people can put their hands on and understand instinctively. That is part of what makes conservatism. It's not just an economic and political doctrine, right? It's about a belief in the sanctity of the individual. Values that shape the nation because of our respect for individual rights. If we don't protect those, what happens to the generations to come? You know, and things are changing faster than ever, and everyone is awfully excited and hysterical about every new change that comes along. And we live in a world where nothing seems to last. Today's emergency is yesterday's news, and tomorrow's emergency, we're not even sure what it is yet, but I'm sure we'll be told. And so it's hard to ground ourselves in anything. So you have to have some kind of voice of reason, some kind of grounding philosophy. And if the grounding philosophy you have is that just whatever's new is what we do, that's going to lead to disaster. The grounding philosophy has to be, let's look at what's works, let's see what's new, and see if that is consistent with what works. Nothing wrong with that. What conservatism really is, is preservation. We conserve. Just like people on the, who want to talk about conserving nature, it's the same thing. Conserve things that are valuable about America, about our self-esteem, and about ourselves and our families. It gives you a sense of direction when you do that. And it's about a society that has respect for the individual and the fact that they want to make themselves better and improve. You know, that isn't a concept, really, folks, that, that have come up a lot in human history. A lot of human history is made up of people who just wanted to survive, it would be nice if they were able to move forward, but it was pretty hard to move forward when every day you weren't sure you were going to have enough to eat or if you were going to get through this next winter to say nothing about what might happen when some marauding warlords come running across your land and burn things to the ground so that they can deny the other warlords that supposedly are supposed to be protecting you from the food that you're growing and you are caught in the middle. Most of human history... The vast majority of people alive are at the whim of others' ideas, good or bad, mostly bad. America is not founded on that kind of principle. 
We have a say about what happens. All of our decisions aren't made someplace else. They're ostensibly supposed to be made in our homes, at our family level, at our community level. Now, I have to say that a lot of times we've forgotten that. We're focusing way too much on the national political scene. And you should keep that in mind. We have to work towards that. But, you know, where does the national political scene come? It comes from right here, wherever you're at. I don't care if you're in Colorado or Utah or Illinois or wherever you might be listening to this. If you're on the Internet, who knows? But your government, if you live in a halfway free society, and that's about all some of them are anymore, it starts right in your living room, right in your kitchen, right in your family, right in your neighborhood. If you don't involve yourself in that, then you can't grow out to reach the national level. You have to be involved. Freedom, democracy, and all of these things that we talk about involve a lot more work and responsibility on the part of the citizen, assuming you are a citizen. In some of these societies, you're not. You're just a cog in a machine. But in our country, you're still a citizen. If you want to be a citizen, there's a job description that goes with citizen. It isn't just hanging around. It's involving yourself a little bit because it's a great machine out there. And the machine constantly needs people to operate it, service it, and make sure it's doing the job it's supposed to do. And that's hey, everybody. Thanks a lot for sticking with us here. KGLN, KNZZ, all our West Color, Eastern Utah. And, of course, you can't forget the ships at sea and all you people on the inner tubes out there. Uh, we are uh, going to have a little something that I think interesting on here. We're going to talk to Russ Andrews. And Russ has filed some forms and uh, is at this point intending to run for the uh, Republican nomination for the 3rd Congressional District here in Colorado. So I thought it would be a good time to get him on and see what he's thinking. I mean, it seems like on the one hand things are kind of far out. On the other hand, they seem really close. So I don't know which it, which it is. So, Russ, thanks for joining us here. Yeah, Rick, thank you very much for having me on. And it's 550 days away, and that seems really close to me. Well, yeah, I mean, especially these days when you have to raise so darn much money uh, to do anything, especially on the national political stage. And then yeah. uh, the 3rd Congressional District is pretty darn big. And so you're going to get you know, around it. Yeah, most people don't realize, Rick, but um, it's the largest uh, non-single state district in the country with 27 different counties. So I'm trying to get around to each county to introduce myself to every sheriff. Uh, every mayor in the district, which is a task. Yeah. Um, every GOP committee, uh, every water and sanitation engineer. Uh, and the reason I'm doing that is I'm trying to find out what federal funding we could bring in to help these folks complete local projects. I've met with several mayors and some water people and the like. I've already identified over $50 million worth of, uh, of stuff that needs to be completed. And, and here's the point with that. Last year, Lauren Bober left $1.1 billion, with a B, dollars on the table. And what I mean by that is federal remittances to our district were $1.1 billion less than the average district in the state last year. Uh, that comes out to $1,452 per person. If you're in radio land out there, you got to ask yourself whether or not you, you run into a pothole this week. I certainly have. Um, so that's money that could really be used to fix our infrastructure and maintain it. So, you know, Lauren went to D.C., um, and it seems to me, to put it generously, uh, it seems to me that uh, she went there to change the moral trajectory of our country. 
Um, I believe that the responsibility of a congressperson is not that. I believe that there's, there's 435 congressmen and 100 senators. I believe that it's our responsibility literally to service our constituents and to bring money back, federal dollars back to our district. So that's going to be one of my priorities when I get to Congress. Well, we'd, we'd probably have a little different view on that, you and I. I mean, my job is to stop money coming from this district going to the federal government. Okay. <laughs> that would be <laughs> that would be my main yeah. concern is to not try and get it back but not have them take it in the first place. And yeah, well, uh, this leaving this money on the table thing, are you re- referring to the – at least part of what you're referring to must be the uh, Inflation Reduction Act for infrastructure. Is that what you're talking about? Yeah, all, all of it. Um, again, Lauren, Well, I'm asking you, did, are you talking about that? Because is, well, are you referencing that? that? She voted against that. Yes, she did. voted against it, too. Uh, but there are ways to deal in Congress, uh, literally to deal, to, to make carve-outs and exceptions, uh, to bring federal dollars back to, to the district. And you're dead right. Um, I, I would never vote to increase taxes, and I would always vote to decrease taxes. The federal government gets way too much of our money. We have the largest federal government in the world, uh, and it's it's growing by leaps and bounds, and, and that has to slow down, too. So, yeah, that, that's on the going inside. My, my point is they're already sucking the money out of our pockets, out of our wallets. Let's try and get more of it back. Well, yeah, and you, and you speak about the roads. I mean... In northeastern Colorado, well, northwestern Colorado, excuse me, uh, I don't think the state funding and part of the federal money goes into that uh, has been increased uh, for parts of transportation in decades in terms of the yeah. overall amount. And, and, and I'll, yeah, I'll be enough, Rick. Um, I've been in t- touch with the uh, uh, Department of Transportation, CDOT, and they really won't let me talk to their senior directors until I win the uh, the primary. So I'm kind of at a loss exactly where we stand, um, but they actually won't tell me what they would do with federal funding yet. Uh, but uh, certainly if I win the primary, um, I'll find that out. And, you know, roads, 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 those are going to be my three top priorities. Well, i got to uh, say I found that kind of disturbing. What, you know, do uh, uh, their highnesses not believe you're important enough yet to speak to them? Is that is that the problem? The uh, they're, you know, the they... Yeah, that's exactly the way it seems to me. I was on the phone with with uh, the communications director on Tuesday, and uh, that's precisely what she told me, that um, they didn't have the time to, to talk with me unless I win something. Oh, so, I see. Well, that's, that's just sort of kind of tug your forelock and get out of the way as their uh, carriage goes by on the road, huh? Right, uh, right. Yeah, well, that's uh, that's part of the problem, isn't it? Is uh, it must be? Yeah. You know, I was uh, not aware, by the way, that their expenditure of uh, tax dollars was a secret, and uh, you had to have some sort of standing to be able to talk to them about it. Um, well, it, it's published online if you want to dig through it. Um, I think right. I haven't spent to do that. I just think somebody would be forthcoming. You know, it's another thing, Rick. I, I'm trying to get a hold of, of mayors. Uh, that will tell me, you know, what their needs are. I go out and meet with them for 35, 40 minutes, and that's been very instructive. Um, but a lot of them are Democrats who simply don't want to have anything to do with me. And I have not yet met with a Republican mayor or a Republican sheriff or the like. Um, they've all been either Democrat or unaffiliated. But my very first plank in my platform will be or is to instruct my congressional staff to reach out to all other 434 congressmen and congresswomen and all 100 senators to try to arrange five to ten minute meetings where we could find um, common ground, any type of overlapping legislation, 
where I could co-sponsor theirs or they could co-sponsor mine. Uh, so, you know, that's a priority. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I don't think that's going to happen. Uh, no, no. I'm not delusional enough to think that all 534 are going to meet with me. And I also realize that some of the meetings will be very, very, very short. Uh, but someone's got to give it a try. I'm not sure if you know who Perry Will is, but Perry is our state senator in my district here. And yeah, I, I, know who, I know who he is. Perry, Perry's a tremendous legislator. He introduced 14 pieces of legislation. He's a Republican. Uh, in the state Senate this year, 13 of those pieces of legislation were signed by Jared Polis, which I find to be fascinating. Um, so, you know, you can reach across the aisle. Someone's got to give it a try, and mm-hmm. I'm, I'm going to be that. I'm, well, I'm, I'm always a little curious about why we're always reaching across the aisle, and they're always kicking well, us from across the aisle. I mean, yeah. I'm not so sure yeah. that's really done us a whole lot of good. It, you know, I mean, I don't know if but, you're familiar uh, with uh, the yardstick and the clock argument, you know, that uh, we start negotiating in the middle, they start at the end, and then we end up halfway to their end. And that seems to be yeah. how it usually goes. Resolute. I'm, a, I'm very much a conservative. Uh, you can call me uh, the gluten-free diet Pepsi version of Lauren Boebert. Um, I'm very much a conservative, but I have some simple things that I think I can get done. One of them is fetal kill. Are we Four million dead. This is as of 2017. Yeah, I mean, we see it in parts of the state. You do. And it's a fire yeah, hazard it's on top of everything else. It's everything. So right now, the Forest Service charges people money to extract that lumber. Um, and my idea, and I realize only 25 to 30 percent of it is, is still worth getting. But um, my idea is to pay people to pull that stuff out of the forest. Uh, and any product that they might make with it, uh, whether it be paneling, uh, firewood, table, chair, whatever, they get to sell that free of federal taxes. So it's not just beetle kill, which affects all 10 intermountain states. It's also states like Vermont and and Maine that have their own insect issues. I think that's something that I can get done. Yeah, Um, but how do you you track that in reality, Russ? I mean, wood is fungible, right? So once you convert wood to furniture or to whatever else, toothpicks, you don't know if it came from beetle kill or not, do you? So how do you yeah, how do you accurately you know decide uh, that that's taxable or not taxable? Good for you because I haven't thought it out that far. I just haven't. So good for you, and I will think on that. Yeah. Um, but obviously, a beetle kill wood does have a distinctive uh, look. It's bluish green from the fungus that apparently the beetles leave behind. But well, uh, that's a good question, and I don't know the answer to that. But but I'm I'm to figure it out. Well, let me ask you a quick question too. While we're you know talking about conservatism and maybe trying to get our feet grounded again, uh, you know one of the things you said to the Telluride Daily Planet, which I always enjoy because I I don't think it's actually our planet they're referring to, um, <laughs> but uh, uh, you know you weren't didn't sound like you're very happy with the Trump uh, administration. You, you know you said something. You know, you know, I, I loved Donald Trump's policies. Absolutely loved and embraced them, uh, every bit of it. And, and that's where I am with Trump. Unfortunately, um, Donald Trump is both Barnum and Bailey. I mean, he invites a lot of what what uh, happens in his his planet. Um, and I just, I frankly would prefer to have, uh, you know, I, again, I call myself Lauren Boebert Light. I'd like to have Donald Trump Light. Somebody like a DeSantis. Uh, Ramaswamy, Vivek Ramaswamy is a brilliant man. He's oh, I like Vivek Ra- Ramaswamy for a lot of reasons. Yeah, he's, uh, oh, yeah. he's very it's interesting. Nikki Haley is great, you know. I, mean, uh, I don't know about that, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, she's, yeah, it's just the Trump world. It would be, 
it would be chaos for four more years. And, and you know, I, I would certainly vote for Trump if he's the, our nominee. I'll definitely vote for him. I, I would vote for any Republican, any capitalist over a socialist. Well, what do you think so, is the what do you think was the major accomplishment of the Trump administration? Tax cuts. The tax cuts. Tax cuts. Right. Yeah, which okay. expire in two years. Yeah, uh, I know. Yeah, that's a, it's a, it's a, it's of concern. Uh, that's going to make, have kind of a bump in the economy, particularly given that time. Oh, it would be a massive okay. bump. Uh, so. we're going to run out of time here in a minute. I want you to give, uh, people, a, a, an idea where they can go to get more information about you. It's Russ Andrews. Yep. My name is Russ Andrews. I've lived here for 29 years, had a radio show in the Roaring Fort Valley for 14 years, Rick. Um, and you can go to my website, Russ4, the number four. CD3.com. That's Russ4CD3.com. Okay, right. thanks, Russ, and uh, we'll see the rest hey, of you. Everybody, we are back. Well, that was a good segment, I thought. Interesting to hear from different people trying to get in the political race and kind of what motivates them a little bit. Uh, it's a shame in some ways that we seem to be on a 24-hour, seven-day-a-week election cycle. It seemed to me like in the past, you know, way back in the past, like maybe 10 or 12 years ago, that you actually had a little time between uh, elections, but not anymore. It seems like you have election, and then uh, who's going to run in the next election, and then who's going to raise money, and then away you go. So uh, we're in that permanent situation, but uh, it's going to be honest before we know. I think Mr. Andrews said it was like 550 days or something, which seems like a long time to me, but I suppose part of the problem that you have now, of course, is all the money in politics, and because of that, you have to raise money all the time. Someone told me, like in a congressional race, in a moderate congressional race, uh, you might have to raise ten to eleven thousand dollars a day after at a certain point to be able to stay in the race, which just makes my head spin. And I don't think it's a good thing, by the way. Nevertheless, so we're in the season. It's not the season to be jolly. It's just the season of the silly things and that end up being very important if we don't take them seriously, no matter how silly they start off. Anyway, I thought with this uh, segment, I mean, we're going to kind of start with the with the silly things themselves. Uh, we just can't, like, I thought I'd just start off by saying, uh, God save the queen. You know, I mean, can you go wrong with that? I don't know. Apparently, President Biden is all in on that, despite that uh, term is usually associated with the ruler of uh, Britain. And unfortunately, very unfortunately, the Queen passed away at 96 uh, earlier this year. But President Biden apparently doesn't know that and also doesn't seem to understand, or, or if he is. Now, this could be, uh, we could be blaming him for being kind of crazy and out of it. But maybe there's some subtlety here. Maybe he's like a super genius and we just can't get our arms around it. Because on Friday, he was giving a speech on gun control, of course. Yes, yes, that's uh, that's what he likes. Controlling your guns, especially. He was in Connecticut which, of course, has really stringent gun controls anyway. But he was giving a little chat at the uh, University of Hartford. And uh, towards the end of the speech, he just said, God save the queen, man. <laughs> no one quite figured out what was going on. Even the uh, usual uh, suspects, uh, you know, trying to protect the president in the, in the press pool were asked what they thought he meant by that. And he said they have no idea. <laughs> Several of you have asked me why he might have said that. Todd Gilman of the Dallas Morning News wrote in a pool report describing the amount. Uh, the other said, I have no idea. 
So we have some ideas about why he ended up saying that. What particular misfire or wire that fell over accidentally touched another wire in the cranium uh, made that connection? We we don't know at all. So there you go. Uh, but he was interesting on gun control because he also said a lot of things that uh, were really not exactly not just true, but odd. Um of course, these weapons of war, that's what the uh, good old Vice President Harris were talking about. They just can't be on the streets. Yeah, well, you know, uh, why don't you get the people that are making war on the citizenry off the streets, and you wouldn't have to worry about firearms as much, and you wouldn't see them that often, I don't think. Also, why don't you quit breeding nut jobs, apparently, in the educational system, or keep an eye on them? That might help a little bit, too. Are we going to get rid of crazy people? Gosh, no. Are we ever going to not have just terrible, I mean, there are these six people, I think it was in Florida, uh, they got killed by a family member. I mean, are we going to have these horrific things pop up every so often? Well, it seems like they never really go away. They do seem to happen more often, but I'm not exactly sure some of these events are actually happening more. They're just being reported more. We live in an age where something that happens in Kentucky uh, is reported in Oregon like it happened there at the same time. I mean, it's it, these things are so full-blown with 24-hour cable news and that's national news all the time. It begins to sink in and affect you. It begins to make you think these things are happening around you all the time. Now, some of you, depending on where you're listening, these things are happening around you. Uh, but most of us that don't live in Democrat-run cities, it isn't as bad as that. I mean, I know that the Democrats would like to make it that bad, but they haven't succeeded yet. So... He had to, you know, talk about gun control because, look, crime is completely out of control in the country, even in suburban areas and what used to be semi-safe rural areas. There's no consequences. People have become excessively violent. There's also, I think, more mental health problems out there. People have become just made crazy by political climate, by this antagonism towards one group or another that gets fanned by... You know, this tribalism that we see being promoted within the Democrat progressive party, that ha- that makes people angry. If you tell people all the time that another group are after them and, you know, essentially want them gone or that uh, their actions are harming or killing them in some way, uh, what do you expect to start happening? I mean, you're essentially telling people that they're under attack and that they have to somehow fight back. And you're using that because you want their vote. Because what you're trying to say is, we need to split you up so that we can uh, get you in our corner uh, because we're going to pretend like uh, we have the solution to any of your problems. And to make that even more emergent, we're going to tell you that not only have you got all these problems that only we can solve, but there's this whole group of people out there, people who just by the by won't vote for us, that are against you. So you really need to cling to us because we're the only answer to you out there. Well... That's a political calculation. Unfortunately for them, it all has cultural, social, which is pretty much the same thing, and crime implications. Start telling people stuff like this. If they believe even a little of it, they lash out. They lose empathy for the other party. Uh, you start seeing what you often see, which is a dehumanization of the other tribes. Right? By Everybody begins to become tied into stereotypes, uh, have ideas about, other groups that come from outside their own experience, what do you think is going to happen? Of course, you're going to have more violence. 
And then when you throw in that you're taking away powers of the police to do regular things, I don't know if you've noticed, but the Dems have realized that this whole defund the police thing didn't turn out very well for them. And so they're trying to turn it around on the GOP now to say because they're on the Department of Justice and some of the corrupt areas in the FBI and apparently some of the other federal agencies that are extensively surround law enforcement, that they're somehow, that they're the ones defunding the police because they don't want to have 87,000 new IRS agents who have, their agency has bought a million rounds of ammunition for reasons we can't quite figure out. Because you're not in favor of that, you're somehow, it's the same as defunding the police. It doesn't seem that way to me or anybody else that hasn't got a low IQ or is secretly wanting to seize power. (laughs) If you think about this, traditionally, there is no federal police force. We think the FBI is sort of a federal police force, but it, it has, even today, limited jurisdiction. They don't get involved in every single thing. Although every time Congress meets, particularly when a Democrat Congress meets, they pass more laws that criminalize behavior that used to be purely within the state's purview. And now we have created some laws out there that are so vague, civil rights violations and voting rights violations and things like that, that are so broad that it allows federal law enforcement to get involved in all sorts of things that just tangentially even touch on these topics. But the numbers aren't there. If you're going to try and run everybody's life, and you're going to try and run it by federal agencies because they're the ones loyal to you, you don't have the numbers yet. So it's in the interest of people that want to control the population a little better to have a large national police-type force, a federal police force. This is a bad idea. It even doesn't particularly work well in smaller countries, Remember, some of the countries that have that are, you know, the size of some of our medium to not so big states. So you try and do that over something like this, you're talking about an enormous bureaucracy. And, and, and we already seen that and how poorly it's been working in Homeland Security, which would have to be beefed up in a logarithmic fashion to have a true national police force. And they keep trying because they realize they don't have a lot of leverage with the hometown police and certainly not sheriffs who are elected by the people. So what they want are people that are beholden to the federal agencies and let them enforce the law. That's something that has not have happened. We have to be very careful of that, and we need to resist that every single time it comes up. Look what's going on with the Capitol Police and all of these other things, trying to set up agencies in other states to monitor, you know, things that might be a threat to politicians. You know, this constant mission creep. It's not even creep anymore. It's a mission explosion. So we have to watch that. And because nobody wants to take responsibility for an uptick in violence in terms of policy, then they want to blame something else. So they want to blame firearms because that is something that they, that's a instrumentality and not a policy. So they want to stick policy on that instrumentality. And now it does seem to me that there's a much more of a movement that they just like to get guns away from people that disagree with them. I mean, I think that's almost vocalized, and certainly probably is vocalized by some of these folks in the far left, even in elected offices. They don't think you ought to have a firearm. I mean, when they're talking about 
you know, mental health and firearms. I mean, there's certainly some in there that think that, you know, voting for Trump should not, you know, allow you to have a firearm. Clearly, something's wrong there. So you never want to let people pass a law like that to say that the mentally unfit shouldn't have firearms. We can all agree with that. Yeah. And then define what mentally unfit is because you can guess where that goes. So anyway, this uh, this poor guy's out mumbling around about firearms. And, uh, of course, AR-15-style automatic rifles and high-capacity magazines. And he wants, of course, to make gun owners liable for unsafe storage of their weapons. Now, here in Colorado, we have some laws about how to store weapons, and uh, there's some illegality now involved if you don't store your weapons properly. But he went further than that. He says, uh, and here's the quote here, if, if any one of you drove up to a parking lot here today and got out of your car, left a key in your car, and some kid comes along, Gets in your car, takes on a joyride, and kills somebody. Guess what? You're liable. Uh, why shouldn't that be in the case if you don't lock your weapon? Of course, what they'd like to do as the first step is have you lock your weapon away so you can't get to it. But that's not actually how it works. Uh, as the article here points out, it's in the New York Post, and I put it on our website too. Most of the common law about the, the states is that if if someone steals your vehicle, you're not held liable for the damages, okay? Now, there are some cities and places like that that have made you liable to some extent if you leave your keys in the car. That, you know, so that I guess that's what he's talking about. But it's the minority, by far the minority, and it's not usually state law. It is usually um, cities, and there's a couple of states out there that is. I think that uh, oh, Hawaii, uh, and he is in Connecticut, to be fair. Uh, so... If you left in the car and there's a foreseeable theft due to factors, uh, then, you know, and I think that you also have a foreseeable problem if the vehicle is used in a crime in a foreseeable manner, too. I would guess that's in there, too. So in Connecticut, he's probably right, but that's not the case across the country. Uh, so he's just addled. <laughs> but no one has yet explained why the queen was involved in this, which I thought was the really, I mean, who... Who thinks that anybody looks at the speeches and the stuff that this guy does and believes that other world leaders think, ooh, that's the guy to follow. Yeah, he's our leader. Or if you're not even vaguely friendly, it's like, there's the guy that we should draw down to because I'm not sure he'll know we're drawn down to him. We have Anthony Blinken you know, going to China after he pretty much begged to go. I mean, they didn't want him there. They kept saying, well, we don't have any space. And, you know, of course, the, the uh, leader of the Chinese military... Uh, has just refused to meet with uh, our defense secretary, you know, Austin. He just, you know, doesn't think they have anything to talk about. And so we're we're ending up, in some sense, begging China just to meet with us. How do you think the meeting is going to go? Already, China has sort of set the table for taking Blinken over there and giving him a spanking about things that they don't like we're doing. And then I'm sure they'll throw in, you know, oh, they like to throw in stuff about our country they get from the media. It's smart on their part. They take media criticism from the United States, and they throw it back at us. Well, you know, you guys are, there's just, you 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 have too much wealth, and, uh, you know, look what is happening in your, you know, so they throw that right back. So Lincoln, Blinken's going to get another, uh, another dressing down, which he'll stare, you know, frightenedly across the table at the people lecturing him, and he'll come back. And the Chinese will, of course, say, well, I'll move the timetable up on that Taiwan thing another couple months because uh, it's we're not seeing any reason to stop. So, also under the area of ridiculous news, I you know changing it to Hollywood, which is 
kind of just about as loopy as D.C. It just depends on who you talk to. They had some new qualifications out now about what kind of movies, not what kind, but some requirements for movies to be nominated for Oscars. In the past, it was pretty wide open. It was mainly, you know, if you opened a movie in that particular year and there was a fair amount of uh, theaters and stuff, and that was kind of it. Oh, no, not anymore. Now, I'm sure many of you, even if not familiar with the story, can guess what kinds of things in it. Uh, Let's see. I'll read you the story here. This is from the New York Post also. Starting with March 2024 awards, movies will not be considered for a Best Picture nomination unless they feature a lead or significant supporting character from an underrepresented racial or ethnic group, have a main storyline that focuses on an underrepresented group, or at least 30% of the cast comes from two or more unrepresented groups, women, ethnic minorities, LBGTQ, he didn't put all of it in there, or the disabled. If you don't meet one of those criteria, then you can't be considered for a Best Picture Oscar. Huh. So they, they discuss some of the movies that would not be nominated now if that were the case, uh, the, which would be things like uh, some of them that you, you wouldn't be surprised about, Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Uh, there would uh, The Godfather. Right? I imagine Jaws, as I'm just sitting here thinking about it, because uh, they... Talk about Richard Dreyfus is a member of that and doesn't like it a bit, thinks it's terrible. It's I, I'm just reading the ridiculousness of it here. So that's what you're going to expect. Now, is that going to make you think that movies that receive the best picture nomination are the best movies when they throw that kind of requirement in? Because you know some movies are just going to be excluded and others are just going to be promoted. And don't think with this kind of requirement that they're going to start shifting the advertising for the movies within the trade papers and stuff at how diverse they are and this and that there. Some casting directors were saying, you know, it, it, how do you, how do you do this? I mean, you have a mathematical amount of people to bring in. And I was thinking, what if you're trying to get a certain ethnic group or a certain disabled person or whatever the case is and they just, you can't find anybody for that part? Or how do you gauge talent anymore? Does talent have anything to do with anything in some of these places anymore? It really has talents and the ability to succeed have little to do with college admissions anymore. I think we know that. I mean, look at some of these this lawsuit that's going on that we've talked about. Hopefully we'll get something out of this summer uh, from the Supreme Court about admissions at some of the Ivy Leagues and so forth about how certain ethnic groups just stand a very low chance of being admitted no matter what their grades are. Because of the, uh, as Victor Davis Hanson likes to say, we've gone from, you know, representation to reparation. I mean, I've kind of sh- shortcutted what he's saying, but he said that they're, they haven't even decided to go, you know, percentage of the population, but now they think they have to, you know, have more than that to repair past damage to whatever group you're talking about. And of course, there's all kinds of groups. It, it's essentially, why don't they just exclude one group? And that would make it easier. Just say, if you have too many white males, that's a problem if you're going to get nominated for Best Picture. Because that seems to be the group. I mean, it would save a lot of talk, wouldn't it? And what if you're a talented actor who just doesn't happen to check one of these boxes? 
Now, I know someone will say from the past, well, what about really talented actors that didn't get jobs in the past because of this? Well, I know that's true. There probably were. I'm sure there were. But we can't fix that now. And it, it, it does not help them to to overrepresent a situation now. What helps everybody is just the idea that, look, we gotta, we gotta have a colorblind society and just take the best people. You know, if you have a part and they're the best person for the part, they seem to fit with the co-stars and they, the storyline, then that's who gets out there. And if people don't like them, they won't come. And if people do like them, they'll pay. See, the, the market will, will draw things like that. I mean, there were actors of color. I mean, of course, we all go back to Sidney Poirier. Uh, in the 60s and so forth, what, that they think was the worst time possible. And he was a big draw. He was a great actor. I, I loved him, his stuff. Um, and Heat of the Night was great. Lilies of the Field was fantastic. Uh, I, I don't think he's, he's one of those actors, you know, he's like, like Denzel Washington and it used to be Tom Hanks was this way too, but that's really fallen by. But, uh, there are some actors out there who are in bad movies, but don't do a bad job. And, you know, so it wasn't impossible, but I'm sure there were lots of actors that did not get parts because of racism or sexism or some other ism out there. But we're not fixing that now by turning everything upside down and trying to do the same thing, but to a different ethnic groups to exclude others uh, because you're trying to fix something that happened in the past. And of course, what the Democrats have done with all this kind of crazy stuff is make it you know, like this is still the 1950s in Selma, Alabama, or something everywhere. There's been no progress as far as they're concerned. Hey, I wanted to read something really quickly that I wrote up because, uh, well, I'll just wait on that. I think we're going to, we're a little short on time, but I appreciate you guys today. We talked about a lot of different things and try and not get overwhelmed with the absurdity and feel like that you're just drowning in it because I do sometimes. And I would imagine you do too. Now, it might be one of the problems with, you know, I prepare for the show and stuff at night, late, you know, I'll get on the Internet after I've done my regular work and look at some of the spots I go to and some of the ways that we try and craft things and look up news. And so maybe it's not the best idea to to have a work day and then uh, spend time before you go to bed looking at just the crazy absurdities in life. It may make you a little jaundiced or maybe... A little cockeyed in your view of things. In other words, things are maybe not as bad as you think they are. But still, I think too much consumption of negative is is a little hard on all of us. And I'm probably a victim of that thing I was talking about, where there's so many bad stories from across the nation, you think they're bad everywhere. There's plenty good out there. Your neighbors lots of times are good people. So are you. Talk to you next week.